And as enterprises are transforming themselves, question is, can they lean on the CSPs to provide this network or can they, or, or should they be looking outside to get a private network of their own? I am seeing a lot of that in the market where enterprises are clamoring. They're petitioning the, the local FCCs or Ofcoms you know, within their respective countries to get spectrum allocated. They've already acquired spectrum in many cases and, and they are trying to build their own networks. Uh, so so it, it's, it's a great time to be at this inflection point. Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. Today, I have the privilege of being joined in the studio by Ashu Vermani. Now, Ashu is Vice President and Client Partner of Communications at Scient. Ashu, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for making time to join us. Thank you, Des. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. I really appreciate you making time to join us. So, folks, we're going to have a great conversation today around a couple of key topics, specifically around uh, 5G, what it's all about, what it means for enterprise transformation, we're going to talk around some of the key topics involved in where 5G can enable a business transformation from an operational point of view. We're going to look at next generation networks and what they offer organizations in the form of various uh, architectures and very different types of architectures that enterprises consider when they implement their private networks. In particular, the plethora of design patterns that enterprises consider in this space, which Ashu is going to give us some great insights into. We're also going to look into the whole challenge uh, that uh, organizations face when they look to implement next generation networks to drive business operations transformation and what that actually means, what some of the use cases are, and, and in particular, where there are opportunities for ROI, return on investment, and where they should look for those in, in the short to medium form, uh, and particularly in areas like utilities uh, and, and energy market segments and rail and, and port and transport and other things like that. But before we dive into that, Ashu, I wonder if you would mind if we would do a little sideways segue for a moment, just get to know you a little bit better. One of the things I usually do with my guests is sort of see if we can get a little insight to you personally, where you're from originally, uh, some of the early uh, things that drove you down the path that uh, you, you've taken so far, both an academic and, and professional career. Any Anything that sort of inspired you down it? I know in my case, my dad inspired me in many ways to go down sort of the professional path and, and become very entrepreneurial. Could you maybe give us a little insight into yourself personally and we can sort of dive into your academic path and maybe your career path after that? Uh, certainly, Des, uh, and, and a pleasure to be here. Uh, so I am uh, what you may call an engineer turned uh, marketer or a storyteller. Uh, so for, formally by training, I mean, I grew up in, in northern India and, and did my undergrad in computer science from one of the IITs and, uh, and came to uh, Rutgers, New Jersey uh, for my master's and PhD in, in the area of, of data mining. Uh, and and that was a very fascinating subject. It was not very cool back then. Uh, today, when you talk to anybody about you know data science and machine learning and AI, it's all the rage. Uh, I, I think that time has arrived. Uh, but uh, frankly, you know, 20 plus years ago, um, people still didn't know much about that subject. Um, and then what I what I learned, of course, uh, you know, what ended up happening was um, uh, as part of the PhD work, we always had an external advisor that came from the industry. In my case, um, uh, it, it was a, a chief scientist at Bellcor uh, back then, uh, who then moved on to Bell Labs, and uh, he immediately offered me a job. Uh, and my career began at uh, Bell Labs. And uh, we did something fascinating. We basically created the industry's first wireline soft switch. And um, uh, it was a great idea of segregating the signaling and media uh, and Lucent had these, you know, big 5E switches. Many of those are still around in existence and, and all the voice telephony actually happens uh, using the switches. And, and the idea was break those monoliths into signaling and, and, and media separately. One thing led to the other. I did a few more startups, uh, a few large companies. And in um, one of the startups, which got acquired by Motorola, uh, you know, my, my job almost became, uh, you know, rather than leading an engineering team, uh, which built components of, um, of the push to talk uh, solution. I actually went around the world explaining to people what we did because we were a 170 person company acquired by 130,000 person company. And I realized I enjoyed that so much more, talking to people, understanding the problems, and then going back and figuring out what is the optimal way to solve problems. And that's what sort of brings us here uh, in, in, in my you know, current role at Scient, uh, what I essentially do as client partners, uh, partner is, uh, is I 
I go listen to customers and I go inside and bat for the customers and then figure out, you know, how is it that we can go help that customer in a very creative way and, and use everything that science has to offer? You know, science, as you know, we are a company organized around 10 different vertical business units, and that includes, you know, aerospace and defense, you know, rail, mining, transportation, uh, communications and utilities. And, and comms and utilities is, is the largest BU inside science. And um, while we serve, you know, 35 of the largest CSPs on the planet, and we have been doing this for two decades now, uh, what is really interesting over the last, I would say, couple of years is that more and more enterprises um, are getting interested in building networks, private cellular networks of their own. Uh, and, and this is an interesting phenomenon that we'll probably talk more in this hour. <clears throat> and, and my role is essentially to combine domain knowledge from our vertical BUs and, and, uh, uh, and, and the comms knowledge that we have in spades over the two decades of experience, and then go out and, and help our customers figure out what is the right way for them to go about on this enterprise transformation journey. So I, I hope uh, I've not gone too long on that answer. No, that was perfect. I'm interested in what uh, attracted you to the whole data mining and, and, and verily then data science, I guess, uh, area in the early days. What, what piqued your interest in that? And because it, I think it's a, an amazing um, uh, direction to go in because it would set you up perfectly for, for a lot of the key challenges you've worked on in your career path to date and certainly going forward because as we all know they, they talk about sort of data science being the sexy uh, career path these days but you know you're you were decades ahead of the world in that space what uh, what in particular attracted you towards that in the early days so you know i was fascinated with computer programming languages and um, you know these languages come in two broad categories. There are the declarative languages where you just tell the computer what you want, but you don't say how you want it. An example of that language is SQL, uh, the structured query language. Uh, you know, it's uh, something Edgar Codd at IBM in the 70s came up with. And, and the funny thing is that language only has three commands, or, you know, mostly three commands, select, project, and join. And, and using a combination of, you know, if you think of, you know, relational databases, which are like 2D tables, and using these very powerful primitives, select, project, and join, you can really tell the computer what you want, not worry about how the computer is going to get about giving you the answer. Uh, and and you, you can certainly have, you know, query the data the, the way you want it. Contrast this with a language like C or, uh, you know, C++, where you're writing procedurally that, you know, you pick the first number and then you multiply it by the second number. You're almost procedurally telling the computer what to do. So what fascinated me was about this SQL query language and could it be extended? Um, databases were very good back then uh, with what is called OLTP, online transaction processing. So they, they were good at transacting. What they were not very good at was analysis. So the question was, could could I or could we extend this language and, and throw in some first order primitives within the language itself and ask deeper questions like uh, which would be around summarization or which would be around pattern detection. So, so the whole thing was uh, looking for patterns in very, very, very large databases. Uh, and, and, and there is this famous case study I still remember from the day about, you know, beer and diapers where, or, or, or uh, you know, drinking and cancer. And, and let me tell you what, what they are. So it was observed that, uh, you, you know, uh, people in, in grocery transactions, that people who ended up buying beers also bought diapers together. Well, uh, this, is, this, is a, this is a fluke correlation. Uh, and later on, when you dig deeper, you realize that you know, young mothers at home would ask their husbands on their way back from work to pick up some, some diapers. Uh, and, and the guys, as, as they would, also pick up beer along the way. Uh, and, and supermarkets, you know, when this correlation was studied, uh, you know, so that's why the, the, the beer and diapers correlation, and you probably can still find some articles in Google about it. And this is very, very old. I'm still dating myself. And, and similarly, uh, you know, the, the correlation between your know, drinking and cancer. Well, it turns out that, you know, many drinkers also like to smoke. It's not drinking that causes cancer. It's smoking that causes cancer. So, you, you know, you get into this difference between causality and, and correlation. And we can have nonsensical correlations, uh, you know, but to find causality is the hard problem, right? So to me, 
studying data and studying for patterns in data was was fascinating because number one it's it's a very horizontal field it does apply to uh, a, you know uh, an insurer like a blue cross blue shield uh, it it applies to uh, somebody that is generating you know wind wind turbines offshore wind turbines like a company like siemens and 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 it also applies to uh, you know a big retailer like tesco uh, who's looking at uh, you know how much quantity of a perishable good to supply to a given Tesco store on a really hot day. Uh, you, you know, so so that you don't undersell, but you also don't oversell because then you're gonna uh, then you're gonna waste, right? So if you oversupply, uh, the product won't sell, and this is these are perishable goods that'll that'll wilt. Uh, you know, whether it's lettuce or ice cream. So fascinating. Uh, yeah, it it is very interesting to me to me data and understanding for patterns or looking for patterns in data is is uh, is something that I, I fundamentally find fundamentally find joy in. So uh, sorry for the long winded explanation. No, but, that uh, was brilliant. I loved your uh, example of the uh, the odd correlations. I remember when they became memes and we saw things like uh, you know uh, uh, the uh, occurrence of murder goes up when uh, ice cream consumption goes up. And um, my favorite one years ago was that uh, someone had done a graph. That correlated the uh, the decline in pirates <laughs> in the uh, 1800s, leading to year 2000, mapped directly to the increase in the uh, average global temperature, <laughs> global warming. Um, you know, it's it, so. it, it's quite funny when when you do some math like that, you can overlay things. Uh, interesting to to see your um your uh, experience there with I guess what we were referring to in the early days as fourth generation languages and abstraction from sort of the the three GLs of C, C++ and uh, I guess uh, Pascal and so forth, where you're actually talking to the hardware, but more importantly, in your case, you know, as you said, with, with SQL and other languages, talking to the data. And in many ways, I think this is a challenge for us nowadays, isn't it? Letting the data talk for itself as opposed to trying to beat it into the shape that we want it to be in. Your uh, early experience in the telco space must have uh, provided some fairly formative uh, views in the world as well. I know, you know, many people I talked to, and certainly in my own case, a lot of the, the early experience I had professionally shaped a lot of my views that I've held strongly uh, over the years, and certainly in my case, a couple of decades now. Um, I imagine that in the space you're in now, some of that early experience would have been fairly formative in, in a lot of the things you're doing currently, particularly around the telco experience and the combination sort of transition from hardware to software, which has become a, a real trend now with the transition to cloud for the likes of 5G. Uh, it, it has been right. So now it's been what 23, 24 years uh, uh, in in you know predominantly telco uh, telco environment across different small and mid-size and large-size firms. Uh, and uh, last, I would say, last 15 of, of uh, 15 years of this experience has been mostly in, in a client-facing role, where I have been either you know marketing to them or or building solutions for them or consulting with them, uh, but. It's it's almost like a um, how how do I say it? I'm I'm listening rather than I'm going out and preaching, right? And I I think to me that's that's the best part or the the most joyful part of this conversation because I learned so much, right? And you know, part of the observations that at least some of the observations I have drawn is you know both from CSPs and enterprises. You know CSPs are great at certain things, uh, but they're not so good at certain other things, and uh, you know particularly. You know, they often try to engineer something to the nth degree. And in many cases, you know, they need to be much more agile, you know, start offering you know, solutions and services, you know, facing the enterprises um, and, and refine it over time. Right. So, uh, you know, what what uh, a good example for that is, you know, I, I was involved in, in the rich communication services, the RCS standards, and actually was working very closely with, you know, a couple of very large CSPs, one European and one North American in driving those standards. But the CSPs were often hung up about, you know, making sure that this worked across, uh, you know, a Vodafone and an Orange and an AT&T and a Verizon. So that all, all the things will talk together and all phones will be able to do video sharing with every other phone. Uh, you know, wait, fast forward a couple of years, Apple comes out with the first iPhone and introduces a service like FaceTime, where an Apple phone will only work with an Apple phone for that service, but it'll not work with a with a Nokia or, or, or an LG or a Samsung phone. So it was a very vertically niche solution. But the beautiful thing was that at least it was out there and, and people could begin to experience it. Um, 
uh, and 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 before you know it, this created sort of the eBay effect, right? You know, where you have producers and consumers, you know, and and then the power of that system is, you know, square in the number of uh, subscribers that have the have that feature, and and that differentiated feature became uh, it led to more and more adoption. So I think from a CSP perspective. I, 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 you know, what I saw was that they hesitate until they could perfect something, and and I think perfection is often the enemy of the good. So, um, you know, as as we talk, you know, today more about more about the enterprise journey, right? Uh, I, I I see the same, uh, you know, same sort of dichotomy where where there is a CSP, you know, what is what we can call maybe a public network, right? And let's call it a public consumer grade network. There already exists a good public consumer grade network. Uh, and what enterprises need is a private enterprise-grade network. Uh, and, and, and these are two different beasts. And as enterprises are transforming themselves, the question is, you know, can they lean on the CSPs to provide this network or can they, or, or should they be looking outside uh, to, to, to get a private network of their own? And I think uh, I'm seeing a lot of that in the market where enterprises are clamoring, they're petitioning the uh, the the local FCCs or Ofcoms, uh, you know, within their respective countries, to get spectrum allocated. Uh, they they've already acquired spectrum in many cases, and and they are trying to build their own networks. Uh, so so it's 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 a great great time uh, to be at this inflection point. Um, uh, and then the same thing with you know 4G and 5G, right? I mean the first. 4G phones were probably introduced in 2019, right? And, and then the first 5G phones came around in early 2020 or, or maybe late 2019. Uh, so each generation within the wireless technology lives for about 10 years uh, before it's supplanted by the next. And the beautiful thing is that you and I are having this conversation in early 2021. So we are sort of in year two or year three uh, at most of, of a 10 year growth within an industry. Uh, and, and these are generational shifts. Um, and we'll talk more about 5G, but I think 5G, uh, you know, brings so much more to uh, an enterprise network transformation. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's almost, you know, disruptive or it almost reimagines how an enterprise can do business. Indeed. So, um, well, that brings us nicely to the first thing I wanted to cover, in fact. And, and you know, our audience is very familiar with the, the overall concept of what the fifth generation network of 5G is. And, and, and as you put it very well uh, recently in a live stream that uh, we did together, uh, it's not just another G. Um, I wonder if we could uh, follow on from what you were just sharing then uh, to sort of look into, more importantly, from the enterprise business transformation uh, point of view, and, and the opportunity to leverage next generation network technologies that you were talking about just a moment ago. You know, specifically when we think about the likes of 5G in the context of private networks, particularly private enterprise networks, is, as you said, in many ways for enterprise, done beats perfect because they just need to get to the next level, you know, version one, version 1.1, version 1.2. They don't have to be a CSP. They're not necessarily servicing tens of millions of clients who are going to uh, ring up and complain if they can't make a phone call on Monday. They want to just get the next uh, capability in place uh, for, for their staff uh, to offer services to clients potentially. When we think about what 5G is about and specifically for enterprise transformation, I mean, people talk a lot about things like Industry 4.0 being enabled by 5G. I wonder if we could just maybe uh, get your thoughts around some of the key capabilities that 5G offers and one in particular makes it attractive to enterprises when they think about this whole challenge of, of building private networks to achieve some sort of enterprise business transformation. Uh, certainly, right, and and I think as as you said, you know, five G is it, is it just another G or is it something different? Well, uh, you know, in my view, there are certain key characteristics within five G that that make it different, right? So it, it enables you know IoT to happen very effectively. It, it it happens you know process control, right? So when you talk about industry four well, industry three was about sensing and 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 getting data out of processes. Industry four is about you know in real time process control. Uh, you know, enabling robots and machines and sensors to talk to each other and and make changes, you know, to a production line, for example. So, so what are some of these characteristics? Well, the the first is is density, right? So, you know, when you look at five G versus prior generation technologies, with five G now we can address a million endpoints uh, within a square kilometer, and and this is a tenfold increase over over four G. Uh, so when you think of uh, you know IOTification or, or sensorization, I don't even know if either of them is an English word, but the idea is that everything becomes you know connected, 
And, and we are now talking about a connected enterprise where spare parts and, and robots and sensors and machines and uh, everything on a factory floor is, is sensorized in a way. It's very easy for you to have tens of uh, yeah, hundreds of thousands of sensors, uh, even on a small warehouse size factory. Right? And add to that, you know, people and add to that machines, right? Suddenly you're talking about a very high density. And, and 5G certainly can address that density because it has better addressability or tenfold more addressability than 4G, right? The, the second difference um, in, in my mind is, is latency and reliability. So uh, there's, there's a con concept called URLLC or ultra reliable low latency communication. And this contemplates or targets a round trip response time for you know of a millisecond so we're not talking 50 milliseconds or 100 milliseconds we're talking about sub millisecond time so from the moment you discover that something is wrong and a sensor tells you that something is wrong with with a turbine or you know machine you can shut it down within a millisecond and and you know if think about a worker safety case right you know you know uh, you know worker comes within a geofenced area of a heavy machinery uh, and 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 his or her life could be in danger you want to make sure you respond quickly. Uh, a more benign example is that you know you're remote, remotely controlling a, a crane uh, or remotely contra controlling a precision drill from your desktop, and imagine you know playing like the Xbox and you have the, the controls for you know joystick controls for for you know really complex piece of machinery. You you don't want that response time to be uh, like a rover on Mars. You want this to be real real time. Uh, and and that's something 5G gives. It's ultra reliable, uh, so you know nothing will get lost. And and number two, it's really e almost immediate. So you don't know the difference whether you are operating the real machinery or or a simulated version or a digital twin of that machinery. Right. The third important piece and where 5G disrupts, <clears throat> uh, you know, a wired network uh, is the fact that it can bring fiber-like speeds to endpoints using the, the high band spectrum. So, you know, when you, when you light up, you know, a factory floor, or you light up a, you know, mine, uh, which, which could be a larger surface area, size of a city, uh, you using the millimeter wave spectrum, you, you can make sure, it, it almost gets you to, I mean, theoretically the maximum is, is 20 gig speed, you know, to an endpoint. But in practice, even if we can achieve, you know, a couple hundred megs, which is an order of magnitude less, now you're talking about putting, you know, two Ethernet cables to every endpoint, except you're doing it without wires, right? So, so if you think about it, why anybody in their right mind would build a brand new factory today, and put 500 miles of Ethernet cables within that factory, when you could do this for a fraction of the cost, by putting up eight, nine, ten, twenty, or so many, you know, antennas, and making sure that every endpoint can get you know, wired network speed to to every endpoint. And, and and the 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 fourth uh, and 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 the final thought I have uh, on the transformational nature of five G is the concept of having local compute. So what we talk about, you know, mobile edge compute or computing at the edge, right? There are cases where enterprises are building a private network partly because of security, partly because they do not want any traffic from their enterprise. To leave the enterprise, or, or, or you know, the CIO to ever, you know, not have control. So in this particular scenario, we, you know, the producer and the consumer are both resi resident within the enterprise, uh, you know, four walls or the enterprise network's boundary. So it's sensors generating traffic, it's robots, you know, taking actions based on what they are sensing, right? So, so everything happens, or, uh, or, or if you're doing, you know, video-based quality assurance, uh, so the video cameras from different angles are looking at the finished product and very quickly inferencing whether or not the product built is to spec or not. And, and if a product is not built to spec, you know, the action is to take that product into seconds or, or you know, basically move it out of the finished pr production line. And, and so all of that production of traffic, video traffic in this case, and, and consumption or inferencing out of that traffic is happening within the factory. So, so why bother <clears throat> with, with hairpinning the traffic from a, from a CSP central office, which could be 400 miles away? It simply adds delay and cost, right? So as enterprises in a nutshell contemplate transforming their operations, which is what 5G is about. Um, I, I think these four characteristics in my mind differentiate 5G from being just another G. 
Indeed. Phenomenal. We could almost do a whole show just on those topics alone. I, I like the idea of you coining sensorized. I made a note that on April 13th, 2021, Ashu <laughs> coined the term sensorized. We're going to use that now. That's fantastic. I have heard about it in um, creating some sort of sensor feedback in, in shoes, but not in the term of, of tech and, and 5G. I loved your example of the comparison between sort of, you know, real-time haptic style feedback of, say, operating uh, let's say surgical equipment or driving a mining truck or even something in a mobile ambulance, comparing that to a device on Mars where you've got this massive round trip time and there's just no way you can do real time. Uh, I also liked your observation there around uh, connecting up to a million endpoints. I can see scenarios, particularly in the likes of um, warehouses and factories and manufacturing and mining and, and, and healthcare and hospitals transitioning from sort of you know wi-fi 802.x11 to to 5g all of a sudden you don't end up with a couple of hundred endpoints per access point you can have a million of them and you can then do things like you know beam forming and, and network slicing to do all kinds of interesting things which just opens up whole new amazing worlds uh, not just in pure iot as you said but in a whole range of other things which become significant game changers although I, i'm not a big fan of that term one of the big challenges with some of this though and you've 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 opened our minds to some fairly substantially exciting things there. When we think about how we approach this, uh, one of the exciting things, but also sometimes one of the constraints in many people's experience, uh, and certainly when we think about this as a challenge around the HR space and my, my experience where people say, well, I, I don't have people that experience, I don't have people that skill set, or, or our team aren't familiar with 5G enough to design strategy or roadmaps or plans or start to design and implement trials is that next generation networks offer such a broad range of different architectures that enterprises consider when they implement their private networks. With this plethora of design patterns, they can consider such as, you know, completely air gap private networks, as you said before, or uh, private uh, locally hub networks, as you alluded to there with sort of the, the local compute comp example, um, or, or some sort of minimal external connectivity with the mobile edge compute that you were talking about, where some of the data goes back to the cloud where there's common data set or densified versions of what CSPs would normally do for industrial use cases and so forth. <clears throat> I wonder if you can share some thoughts around how people should be sort of approaching this space, given that there are so many broad different architecture types they can consider. Uh, you're, you're literally uh, in the thick of this thing and you're already working with a number of people around the world in this space. As you said, you're, you're already supporting uh, 35 of the largest CSPs in the world <clears throat> and certainly thousands and thousands and thousands of large enterprise what have you seen so far that you can share around the approach to how enterprise should consider some of these uh, next generation network architectures and, and some of the places they should be looking to start? You know, so so before we before we get into the architectures, Des, let me let me talk about two key points. You know that are allowing or permitting uh, such kinds of private networks to be set up, right? And 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 one of that is spectrum availability, right? So. Uh, Enterprises in various countries have been petitioning their, you know, local FCC and Ofcom equivalent for reserving spectrum for enterprise transformation or enterprise usage, and and different markets are taking different approaches. And uh, to date, about a dozen large countries, you know, developed countries like US, UK, France, Germany, Australia, you know, these guys have reserved spectrum for private network deployments. <clears throat> And and the US model is that of you know a countrywide spectrum called you know CBRS. Citizens Broadband Radio Spectrum. Uh, Germany has reserved some mid-band spectrum for exclusive enterprise use, and we think other European countries will follow. And, and UK has a localized model where, you know, based on the geography, they may release different bands for, for different enterprise use. And, and the nice thing is that enterprises are recognizing this need, and they also recognize that a macro CSP network may not be fit to serve a private enterprise because the needs may be very unique. Uh, so, so today we have about <clears throat> 37 different countries and, and territories around the world that have private mobile networks deployed. So, so this is a you know nice uh, up and coming trend. It also makes it easy or feasible. So the feasibility, you know, fear is is going away, right? And and the other thing uh, is that when you know we talk about a private when we talk about a macro network for uh, you know like a Verizon or a Telstra or an AT and T. We're talking about a network that serves, you know, 300 million endpoints over, you know, very vast geography. Uh, so the design point was to 
to really scale the networks up and up and up and really how how big can you make uh, your, your software code to run uh, and 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 still and still function the design point for the enterprises is quite the opposite the question is can you shrink wrap so that it can run on two x86 servers sitting in a closet inside an enterprise and still cover the the 30 40000 sensors and the nice thing is that there is this concept called NFV or network function virtualization where you know 10 15 different you know 3gpp architectural components you know like like the pcrf or you know the policy function or or you know the the some of the the radio access network or the core network uh, that that makes these calls connect to each other all of those things can now be run as small containers inside you know many virtual machines on a single physical hardware Right. So it's now becoming very easy to 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 bring you know a wireless network uh, onto two servers or three servers. Um, uh, so so with th- with that backdrop of what is allowing these kinds of networks to be easily deployed, let's talk about the architectures, right? So the first kind of architecture is you know what we call a standalone architecture or an air-gapped architecture. In this particular case, the enterprise is highly sensitive about the data that is being produced at the enterprise. And in most cases, the consumers of the data are also within the enterprise. So, so when you talk about you know, the example of a production line and, and widgets are being produced in a factory and, and two or three cameras from different angles are checking the quality of every widget produced and then they're just taking out things that are imperfect, right? And, and all of this is happening very fast with uh, real-time video analytics. Well, the production of the video data is happening and, and the machine learning you know, robot that is sitting behind uh, is the, providing the intelligence on, on which are perfect products and which are imperfect products, right? So there is absolutely no reason why this needs to go out to the rest of the world. So we can, we can think about a standalone network you know, whether it's for a defense gear manufacturer or, or some, some other private enterprise. But as long as we can talk about a production consumption happening within the enterprise, we can think about a standalone network that is completely air-gapped and, and no outside phone or no outside you know, sensor or tablet or device can connect into that unless explicitly permission, right? So, so that's one architecture. It's a completely standalone architecture. The other extreme, uh, is is what I would call a densified public network. So, think of a remote mine, um, and and uh, you know think about let's let's take Australia for an example, and then think about you know Telstra's network. Now, it may not make economical sense for Telstra to radiate uh, you know enough bandwidth and enough coverage uh, you know at some remote site you know 200 miles from a nearest city, right? However. You know, with with the right economical uh, structure, you can almost imagine pulling, you know, you know, you know, a couple of fiber strands and and fiber cables, and then setting up local towers in a mine, and then providing enough density. So what we what we now do is we take the CSP network and we densify it for an enterprise to make sure that the enterprise's needs are met. But it's sort of the easiest to deploy because all you're essentially doing is you're you're behaving like uh, the concept called DAS, uh, distributed antenna system. So when you talk about in-building coverage, right? You know where five G doesn't penetrate buildings very well. What do people do? They go out and and they you know connect a rooftop antenna and then they internally radiate using wires and put up little mini cells, micro cells within different floors of a high-rise building. So they do provide dense five G coverage, but in the end, it's all backhauled to the CSP. The, so, so that's sort of the, the other extreme. The, the hybrid model in the middle is where we separate the signaling and media. So the signaling is still provided by the CSP and is sort of hairpinning from the local CO, the central office of the CSP. But as far as the media is concerned, the media breaks out locally. So we consume and produce the media locally. So it's sort of a hybrid of you know, model A, which is completely private, and model B, which is a densified public network. Uh, where you get the best of both worlds. And depending on what type of the enterprise there is, what are their needs? Um, and and uh, in the end, you know, are they thinking about it in a network as a service model? Are they thinking about it as, you know, their own IT team now taking over the operations of a private network? Depending on a variety of questions, we can recommend or, or you know, the enterprise can 
choose one of these three approaches. And then of course there are further nuances as you go deeper into uh, you know, which, uh, which approach we are deploying with. Does that help? Absolutely. It reminds me of one of the key things that I, I've been telling boardrooms for, for a year and a half now, and that is that there are so many uh, options now available, which is exciting, that it's so important to find the right partner of choice, such as Scient, to help them from strategy through to design and development and implement, implementation, management operation, because if your core business is not being a CSP or, or a CSP grade network uh, implemented, then it's not really something you want to undertake if it isn't your core business. If you're a bank, for example, don't become a telco. I, I was reminded when you were talking about some of these things that, you know, in Formula One racing, uh, a lot of people poo-poo Formula One racing thinking it's a waste of money. But in fact, it's actually a really good investment because just like the CSPs, they're building these massive, powerful networks to, to provide that capability to individuals. But now we're seeing with 5G, it's coming down to localized networks, enterprise-grade networks, small infrastructure. It always reminds me of that Formula One to sort of consumer-grade cars that, you know, our little Audi Q5 has uh, this amazing engine in it. It's only a little four-cylinder, but it's turbocharged. And it's extremely fuel efficient, but that came from Formula One racing design, right? And I think we're sort of seeing now that we're getting that same uh, thinking where carrier grade capability is becoming available in private networks. One of the things that um, a lot of people talk about, and, and I'm keen to get your thoughts on, is that this is all well and good and it's exciting. Um, but a lot of people are looking at sort of where are the use cases that we can gain some return on investment? When we, when we look to implement these next generation networks, Invariably, they are to drive, you know, new capabilities, uh, whatever the, the need might be, whether it's banking, wealth management, health, transportation, aviation, et cetera, mining. You know, business operations transformation is obviously underpinning it. They're looking to do something better and smaller and faster and leaner. But it all comes back to what are the use cases uh, in particular and, and where can I get a return on my investment for these? I wonder if you can give us some examples of those that you've seen of late that uh, people might consider because I think this is a real challenge now is there are so many avenues to go. Where do we start? Where do we put our first foot forward to look for some of these use cases we can gain benefit from as an enterprise? And what sort of return on investment opportunity can we glean from these? Yeah, so so great, great question, Des. Uh, and, and we certainly talked about, you know, the IoT use case. And, you know, people talk about IoT and 5G as in the same phrase or in the same sentence, because, you know, IoT is synonymous with 5G, uh, and then certainly for you know new factory or a manufacturing floor, you know that use case uh, stands. But let's let's talk about some of the other other domains, right? So so when let's look at for example mining as a, as a vertical, right? Um, the the first reason or use case I would give for a private network is that, you know you know mining sites are are big. Uh, you know I, I live a little outside Boston, right? And then uh, you know some of the large mines are you know 50 kilometers uh, by 70 kilometers, right? So suddenly you're talking about an area that is two times the city of Boston. And given it's remote, and given the fact that CSP is not covering it well from an economic perspective, for, for good reasons, right? Business reasons, um, this sort of an area is very hard to cover with BiFi. As, as an existing technology. So it may make sense for just coverage, density, and bandwidth reasons for you know, a mine operator to, to build a private LTE or 5G network, right? Now, having built one, you know, how, how can they use it you know, more effectively? Well, you know, one is for sort of route planning and, and uh, you know, providing you know, non-line of sight coverage to autonomous haulage trucks or these uh, large precision drills. Right, uh, or and and you know real-time image and video analytics and and reacting uh, to to what the precision drill at the you know far end of the mine is seeing uh, you know as it's uh, you know cutting through cutting through rock right uh, a big key uh, area in in mines is worker safety right so where you know every asset every human being every helmet has an asset tag right and this asset tag is connected to the the private cellular network and every machine uh, you know every every piece of you know komatsu caterpillar john deere every heavy machinery gear is connected uh, in a similar manner but is also geofenced so every machine knows uh, that as you know as soon as you know a helmet enters uh, you, you know sort of a non safe zone uh, the machine has to come to a stop so you're making sure that the workers are safe because sometimes it, it's it's hard to um uh, technology can do things better than than uh, you know machines looking around or machine operators even looking around and figuring out you know could somebody be in harm's way right so so that's uh, 
think those are some of the use cases, and then there are many, many more. Clearly, uh, uh, when we when we talk about utility, utilities as a, as a vertical, and that's another another of the verticals that has really large area uh, to cover. So we're talking about utility grids. A big problem utilities have have and uh, and why they can't often rely on the public network. I can talk about the use cases from California where there are constant wildfires, there are earthquakes, there are landslides. And in the Eastern coast of United States, there are, there are hurricanes, right? So when you, when you think about uh, you know, a disaster, a natural disaster occurs and the utility companies need to deploy their, uh, their, their crew, uh, how, how do you you know, have push to talk, push to video, you know, AR, VR support for, you know, repair of things. How do you get that whole network up? Because this is the exact time when the carrier network is also down in the same area. So a lot of these utility companies have, you know, almost a movable private network that they can bring into an area, turn it up with a mobile trailer and have their entire crew within, you know, several kilometer area that is connected to this private network and they can carry on their work while the local CSPs are also repairing their own networks, right? And, and if the utility, and if the CSP network is, is available, chances are there are millions of people calling their friends and family. So, so you know, there's really no good SLA that, that you can guarantee. Uh, more importantly, another <clears throat> use case and, and why a couple of the California utilities and, and, and one of the New York Power Authority uh, have acquired rights to build a private network of their own is number one for inspection. So, so utility grids have very big footprint, a, a geographical footprint, and, and to inspect the transmission lines and, and uh, various types of power generation and power transformation assets uh, these utilities are talking about flying a network of drones and then have these drones, you know, do a certain flight path and inspect these lines where we're, you know, doing this through humans would be very, very expensive. So, and, and by the way, this, this whole, you know, drone-based asset monitoring is an area science has been investing heavily. So, which is why I, I know about this use case. So that's one use case for the utility grids. The other use cases, and I'll, I'll reuse this word called sensorizing. So one of the things utilities are doing is they're sort of adding sensors to almost everything, even the legacy dumb devices you know, whether it's, you know, manhole covers or, or whether it's, uh, you know, batteries. But the idea is that once you bring legacy things that were traditionally dumb and you bring them into the IoT era, now your entire grid is sensorized. And if there is a fault or if there is a breakage using, you know, voltage phase detection, you can tell where exactly in the network is, is the fault. Otherwise, you would have people on trucks, you know, going off in different directions and going for tens of miles, hundreds of miles in cases to figure out where is the fault. And in, in, in now with the private network, the isolation of fault almost becomes a, you know, a few milliseconds late, right? So as soon as something happens, the grid knows exactly where the problem is. So, so to, to them, that is a big money saver, right? So, uh, and, and uh, uh, we talked about the QA use case in, in the, in the uh, uh, factory floor and production shops, but, um, uh, the, the important thing is that, uh, as, as you know, we, we, we do not think of a private network as an end unto itself, right? So what you rightly said, uh, any CXO considering a private network should think about, you know, what are the one, two, or three use cases that are going to justify the investment into a private network? And I think uh, Scient is very uniquely positioned in a way because we have these 10 vertical business units and then we have the comms business unit. So we can bring the domain expertise from the utility group or from the automotive group, from, from the aerospace group, right? So we can understand that world. And then we can also understand the comms world, right? And then by being, bringing people from two different practices together, we can you know, work on a creative solution for our customers. There's no doubt you're perfectly positioned for that. And uh, you reminded me of the whole transition to Industry 4.0 through all that sort of from what you sort of think about. I often think about Industry 4.0 as the transition from steam to electricity to computing to now intelligence as you were talking about all of that. Because uh, when we think about what next generation networks and particularly 5G bring with lower power, low latency, high bandwidth, high density, increased security, these are all the things that you alluded to there as uh, you know, high value uh, return on investment opportunities uh, as organizations look to adopt and implement next generation networks uh, to drive some form of business operation transformation. They're looking for all these kinds of things. And, and 
as you outlined there, some of the, the key areas around automotive and transport and smart factories, smart buildings, smart cities, smart utilities, these can be done so localized in small form to run either trials or initial test deployments and then scale out from an enterprise grade that, you know, I, I personally get very excited. I almost jump out of bed thinking about what's possible next because I, I think we've been given this window of opportunity now for organizations at all size, shape and form to, to work with yourselves, uh, Ashu and your team there at Scient to kind of look at these early trials, look at these early opportunities for ROI and, and, and short to medium term gains to, to test where the market's going. A lot of people talk about 5G sort of from a handset point of view. To me, that's the least interesting piece. It's, it's everything else that's interesting. Well, you've given some great insights in, in, in some of the, in my case, I think three of the biggest challenges that, that organizations are faced with now, uh, and, and I really appreciate that. I wonder if we could close out briefly with a couple of minutes around your thoughts uh, as to kind of what the next 12 to 18 months holds. I, I often ask my guests, and I hope you don't mind, but if I was to hand you a virtual crystal ball and, and ask you to uh, gaze upon it for a moment and just give us a, a, a sort of a, a short one or two minute take on your thoughts of what the next 12 to 18 months will hold and <clears throat> potentially something that our listeners can sort of take away in action that is something that their organization should start a conversation with. Some of the, you know, you've talked about a number of those, but sometimes for organizations, a case of, well, where do we start? What's the first foot forward? In the next 12 to 18 months, what sort of conversation should organizations be having and ideally be reaching out to yourself, uh, Ashu, and your team there at Scient to help direct and drive them and advise them around that to sort of get to the point, well, where, where to next? Where do we go from here? So with all humility, Des, uh, if you did give me a virtual crystal ball that could look out 18 months into the future, I would probably plan my portfolio investments and figure out the <laughs> best vacations. Right? What are the lot of numbers, but, right? But having said that, you, you know, with a little bit of humor, um, uh, back to real world, right? So so I think here is, here is what I think, right? And then... Uh, let's talk again in 18 months to see. Uh, the first thing I, I, I think uh, will happen is that, you know, today we talk about, you know, the world, the entire world as having, you know, a few hundred, you know, 500 to a thousand CSPs, right? What I think if you fast forward a little bit, we are, we're going to have a few thousands of CSPs, right? So you, you will find that uh, uh, many large enterprises will be building out their own network. A, a private 5G network will almost become like a private 5G net, uh, private Wi-Fi network, right? So today you go into a Starbucks or you go into a mall, the mall may have their own Wi-Fi network, right? And then you go into a Starbucks inside a mall that has a Starbucks private Wi-Fi network and you connect to that network because you want better bandwidth. In fact, you know, the business model of you know Starbucks and Barnes & Noble partly was that we could attract clients, give them good quality bandwidth so they can get their work done while they're having a cup of coffee, right? To me, uh, fast forward a little bit, and now we will talk about you know the branded 5G. Uh, so you go into a museum and you're you're enjoying you know not just the Dali exhibit, but you're en enjoying a whole 3D experience with a with a virtual reality headset, uh, and then that's all powered by the museum's private 5G network, right? So uh, we could talk about really high speed and, and really big pipes, and then you know connecting potentially you know 30, 40,000 guests inside a museum all you know, either on a, a museum's own private 5G or, or a, you know, densified CSP private 5G network. So private networks will become much more common, just as easy or just as synonymous as a private Wi-Fi network. So other than this being a technology change, uh, it'll, it'll still be a private network, right? And then the second thing is, uh, as I said, the number of entities that will become, uh, you know, owners and operators of private network. Uh, you know, I'm already in conversation with, for example, Towerco. So, you know, today we talk about in the North, in North America, what, you know, AT&T, Verizon, you know, the Sprint T-Mobile merge, right? And, and, you know, these are the big three names. And then you have, you know, tier two carriers, et cetera, that are localized. Uh, but now we can think of, you know, Towerco's or even utility grids, uh, that have these assets already, right? And it only takes a little leap for them to begin to offer, you know, privatized 5G solutions, right? So, so we'll see many, many more CSPs pop up because they will be providing communications. And in the true sense, they will become, you know, they'll not be telcos, but they'll be communication service providers, right? So we'll see many more of those. And, and finally, uh, we will, when we talk about, you know, uh, connectivity, right? So the the macro consume macro cellular network you know for the large part was designed for you know people to people 
traffic, right? So it was, you know, me talking to watching Netflix or me talking to Amazon. So it's people, people to systems, uh, so or or people to people. Me calling you, for example, on on this uh, Zoom call that we are happening, uh, that that's happening now. Uh, whereas a lot of the private network is mostly about thing-to-thing traffic, right? So it's, it's a sensor-to-sensor or sensor-to-robot, right? You know, or a machine-to-machine communication. So we may see enterprises keeping that part separate. So, so the people-to-people or you know, me going into SAP or me going into my, my corporate sales force is still happening on the, on the public network, whereas a machine-to-machine traffic inside the enterprises is completely protected. And it's happening on a private slice of the network. So, so we'll see these networks coexist. Uh, you know, both public and private networks. Uh, one is densified, and the other is a standalone, uh, sitting in, in in the in the enterprise closet. Uh, so, and 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 you know, if if there was a fourth prediction, it's it's uh, it's the fact that everything that you can think of and things you can't even think of today will have sort of a 5G sensor or radio. So we're we're talking about connected light bulbs now. Uh, and, and, and Philips and others have already launched and you, you can buy these light bulbs where, you know, in my home, I already have some that I can control with my iPhone and I can change the color. I can change, uh, you know, when to turn them off or on. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, I can even, I cannot even imagine what other things will become sensorized, right? So uh, it'll, it'll be certainly a fun, interesting place when, when the, you know, my own house has, you know, 500 different things that are on sensors. So including my carbon monoxide detectors, I mean, my Nest thermostat already is connected. Uh, not, not too long ago, there's, you know, 10 years ago, I could have counted on, you know, fingers of two hands, how many connected devices I had in my home. And uh, now that I think about it, that, that number is already, you know, beyond 50. Wow. in a family of five. So uh, so that number will go up by an order of magnitude in the next, I would say, you know, 18 to 24 months. No, that's a lot. It's it's great. It kind of, I, I had to grin when I was sort of thinking the future is bright and you're talking about uh, intelligent light bulbs. Light bulbs. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ashu Vimani, it's it's always a pleasure to catch up with you. And it's always such a privilege to get your insights and and, and thoughts around all these spaces and, and some fantastic to uh, forward-looking uh, uh, thoughts there. And, and I think, if anything, my key takeaway from that line was was now is the time to start those conversations and now is the time to reach out to yourself and your team there at Scient and talk about what's possible, what should be done in the short to medium term and where the long-term roadmaps might need to go. I think one of the great things about this is there's a lot of opportunities for different amazing things to be done. I think that also becomes a little bit of a risk though for organizations in that there are so many options. They need good advice uh, and good strategy and roadmaps and planning to, to make the right decisions on that. Ashu, thank you so much for making time to catch up with me and have this great conversation. I really appreciate it. it so many great insights from, I, I guess, just your, your whole life experience, but particularly from, from your current role there as vice president and client partner of communications at Scient. Uh, and, and as you alluded to, we will definitely have you back again soon to continue the conversation. And uh, I'll look forward to the opportunity to uh, circle back on some of the things we talked about now and see how they panned out in the next 12 to 18 months. But we'll have you back before that. But in the meantime, thank you again for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back again soon. My pleasure, Des. And I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks so much, Ashu. Well, stay safe yeah. and uh, we'll see you again soon. Thank you. You too, Des. Bye-bye.